You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Throughout much of American history, people with developmental disabilities have been treated horribly. Well into the 20th century, it was common for people with autism or Down syndrome, for example, to basically be treated like criminals. They were often forcibly warehoused in institutions where conditions ranged from neglectful to unimaginably cruel. Even medical journals sometimes refer to people like this as idiots or other disparaging descriptions. In short, people with developmental disabilities were dehumanized, and society as a whole treated them as something to be ignored, or a burden, or even a plague. Fortunately, by the second half of the 20th century, society's opinions had begun to improve. While state-run institutions were certainly not perfect, reforms had passed that improved conditions dramatically. Then, something happened in the early 1970s that changed everything, and not necessarily for the better. At the time, Ronald Reagan was governor of California. As governor, he helped launch a conservative movement here in the Golden State that he would eventually take nationwide once he became president. The goal of that movement was to shrink the government, except for the military, of course. In practice, shrinking the government meant cutting funding for public services. So, when the Gipper was governor, one of his most consequential decisions was to defund state-run institutions for developmentally disabled people. Unfortunately, one question Reagan didn't consider was, what would happen to all those people after they were pushed out of their homes? I recently spoke with Tom DiMaria, the director of an Oakland-based organization called Creative Growth. He told me about two people, a married couple, who were very concerned about this question. Here's Tom. Creative Growth was founded by a couple of Florence and Elias Katz who were married to each other. He was a psychologist, she was an artist. Elias knew that these people were going to be deinstitutionalized and wondered what was going to happen to them. And because his wife was an artist and he believed in art, they thought that art was a path forward. So they literally put paint on a table in the garage and then said, well, I guess they can come here. So people started to arrive. Um, at their home and start to experiment with um, art making. And that's over 43, 44 years ago now. The Katz's idea turned out to be a really, really good one. To illustrate the kind of success that creative growth has achieved over the past four decades, I'll give one example. There was a woman named Judith Scott who was born with Down syndrome in 1943 and raised on the outskirts of Cincinnati, Ohio. She also contracted an illness when she was a baby, which caused her to lose her hearing, but nobody at the time knew that she couldn't hear. Judith's sister Joyce just came out with a book called Entwined. Here's how Joyce describes what happened. Quote, Judith's deafness was unrecognized for 30 years, and she was considered seriously retarded, with no prospect for education. Following the advice of professionals, Judith was consigned at the age of seven to be warehoused in a state institution 
where she remained in anonymous isolation for 30 years, end quote. Joyce eventually got her sister out of this institution, brought her to live in the East Bay, and enrolled her in creative growth. By the time Judith joined the program, it had moved out of the Katz's garage into a building on 24th Street near Webster that was previously an auto repair facility. Judith quickly became a constant presence here, and she spent her days making intricate fabric sculptures. Flash forward a few decades, and now Judith Scott is known as a complex and brilliant artist, according to the New York Times. Another New York Times article says, quote, The art world does agree that her works are superb. Here's Tom DiMaria again. Judith Scott, whose work is traveling around the world right now, she had a one-woman show at the Sackler Center for Feminist Art at the Brooklyn Museum in New York. It was critically important that Judith's work was presented in the context of a feminist, you know, museum collection in New York, as opposed to disability. So she's being seen and presented as a leading female artist of her time. When Judith was born, doctors didn't expect her to live very long. Although she died in 2005, she defied expectations and lived to the age of 61. Also, she created an artistic legacy that will continue to be appreciated for a long time to come. That's just one of creative growth success stories. Conventional studio in Oakland has not only provided a valuable service for thousands of developmentally disabled people and helped launch the career of several globally renowned artists. Creative growth has also helped popularize a movement, often referred to as, quote, outsider art. In the decades that this gallery has moved from the fringes to be embraced and respected by the mainstream, the uptown neighborhood that Creative Growth calls home has traveled on a similar trajectory. Now, I know that there's this awful tendency to talk about certain pre-gentrification Oakland neighborhoods, like there wasn't much going on before the coffee shops arrived, but this is a fairly accurate description of the uptown area in the 1980s and 90s. Yes, of course there were some people living around here, and some little shops, and there are some churches on the edges of this area, and I'm not trying to erase them from history at all. If you're listening now, and you've been holding it down in Uptown for 20, 30, 40 years, please get in touch with me. I'd love to hear your perspective on what this neighborhood was like back in the day. However, much of this area was parking garages, auto repair shops, old car dealership showrooms, and a lot of them were empty or abandoned. In 1982, Creative Growth purchased a building that had been an auto body shop for $200,000, and they've been here ever since. Tom describes what the neighborhood was like in the late 1990s when he joined the organization. To get a cup of coffee in this neighborhood, you needed a car. Most of the buildings were empty. There were parking lots. It was just pretty barren. So, just like how Uptown was being ignored in the 1980s, so was the kind of art being made here. During this era, creative growth artists were a long way from New York Times features and museum exhibitions. As I mentioned earlier, one name that is often used to describe this kind of work is, quote, outsider art. Tom describes the origin of this concept. 
It comes from the French word art brut, which means raw art, which was coined after the war by Jean Dubuffet. And he looked for artists that were making art outside of academic traditions that had never gone to school, that were making art often in secrecy and privacy and isolated. In the 1970s, an English author and art historian named Roger Cardinal wrote a book about this same subject, and it was the first presentation of the ideas in English, and it was called Outsider Art. Although Rogers told me, he said, I didn't really coin that word. The marketing department for the publisher said that would be a good word for it. So that became the go-to word in English. Just as people from Oakland might bristle at the idea that their hometown is, or at least was, an outsider city, Tom also expresses a reluctance to embrace this term. Outsider does sound like a different way of saying other. And the other has traditionally been a concept that was used to create distance between people. Labeling someone or a group of people as others is a way of dehumanizing them. And this othering process has done a lot of harm to disabled people. So although this is a convenient term that's widely used in the art world, I understand where he's coming from. Creative growth artists sort of, do we call them outsider artists? I don't. Um, I feel that for people with disabilities in society, they're sort of so pushed to the margins anyway that I don't want another label that identifies them as different or alien or outside. That said, we do participate in some arenas of outsider art. We participate in the outsider art fair. We participate in um, exhibitions of, of outsider art. But I like to see and call our artists self-taught artists, visionary artists, and for me, the key is that their work doesn't respond to art history. So they don't know if somebody's made a, a painting or a drawing like that before ever. So that intention is kind of there, but it's not a label we usually grasp. Personally, I haven't visited a ton of artist studios, but the ones I have seen are usually structured as a hallway lined with doors, each leading to a series of little rooms. If the door is open, you can walk by, and maybe there's one or two people in there, painting or discussing a project or whatever. Maybe there's some music playing, but these places are often fairly quiet. This is not the vibe at Creative Growth. If you're walking down 24th Street, you can look through a big glass window into the Creative Growth studio, and what you'll see is dozens of artists working together, at long tables in one giant space. There are no walls, and if you poke your head in, you'll hear talking, laughing, people encouraging each other. It's a really happy and colorful place. That's the studio. The gallery, on the other hand, is in the other half of the building. There is a wall dividing these two spaces. That's because it's important to distinguish the process from the product. Creative growth wants the art to speak for itself. Tom explains why, when the organization adopted this goal of being taken seriously by the art world, this was the strategy they chose. So that became a multi-year, almost two decades long campaign to really break down some of the barriers around disability and that to sort of demonstrate that people with developmental disabilities can stimulate us intellectually. And we did that, I think, by leading with the work. And when the work is really presented in a contemporary way and shown in the same way 
then people will start to see it differently and understand its complexities. People often come to us if they want to show a creative growth artist or want to see a show, how come we don't put a picture of the artist next to it? Or they want to know about the disability of the artist and this kind of thing. And we say, you don't see that in a contemporary gallery. We're not going to treat our people differently. You know, you're going to come in here, you're going to see the art, you're going to see the contribution. If the art interests you, then there's a whole conversation to have about who the artist is, what the circumstances under which the art was made. And that opens the doors to us being advocates for the role of people with disabilities. But we never lead with disability, we lead with art, and I think that's helped. Like most people, I'm no art expert. I try to appreciate it, and I know what I like and don't like, but as far as value, both monetary and aesthetic, I have to defer to the professionals. In the art world, the tastemakers and trendsetters are people who own galleries and run auction houses, and curate museum exhibits, and the critics, of course. This world can be opaque, fickle, and even shady. The famous British street artist Banksy made this controversial documentary that made fun of how the art world is so susceptible to shallow marketing hype. The film, called Exit Through the Gift Shop, demonstrated how the value of art is often the result of a kind of collective illusion. In other words, Art becomes important or valuable because important or rich people say so. The film was nominated for an Oscar. The point is that for art to really mean something, for it to have lasting, indisputable value, there has to be something real there, something deeper that will withstand the ebbs and flows of art world trends and flavors of the month. This substance is why creative growth won't go out of style. Tom describes how gaining this recognition wasn't easy. It has been a struggle to kind of cross the threshold into contemporary. But what happened is that, you know, artists always lead the culture. It's artists that really started to see that the contributions of the creative growth artists were amazing to them. So when the artists started to see it, then the gallery started to see it. When the gallery started to see it, the museum started to see it. And it's like, it's one of these tipping points where you bang your head against walls for 10 years, and then suddenly people get it. Creative growth's relationship to the art world is a delicate dance. On the one hand, they have to play by the rules in order to maintain their esteemed status. Just like other traditional galleries, they exhibit the work of their artists at big fancy art shows in Tokyo, Paris, New York, and Miami, for example. On the other hand, One of the reasons why creative growth thrives is because it is unique, and it has set itself apart from conventional studios and galleries. Tom explains. Our artists, they're not making work in response to art history. They're not making work in response to commercial galleries. They're making, and they're not academically trained. So they're making work that responds to their own lives and position in the world as human beings. So the forms that their work take is is expressive, visionary, authentic, And you can walk into creative growth and see this without the barriers of the commercial white cube gallery in Chelsea where you're afraid to go in or ask because, you know, they're not, you don't feel very welcome. You don't even know what to say, particularly in these days where everything is mediated through a screen and there's very few little personal interactions that are direct and immediate. Our artists sort of counter that and say, here I am, an artist in the world, and this is what I made. And, you know, maybe I don't speak or don't speak English or I'm deaf or I'm blind or whatever, but we can still communicate 
through this piece of paper with this sculpture or this piece of clay. And I think that's a really primary and important human interaction. So far, this delicate dance is working. In fact, it's working better than the dearly departed founders, Florence and Elias Katz, could have ever imagined. I don't think they had any idea, I know they didn't, that the artist's work would be in major museum collections around the world, that we would do leading contemporary art fairs, that there'd be books and publications, that we'd have researchers coming here to work with us. The fact that Dan Miller became our first artist and the first artist on the autistic spectrum Dan's work purchased by the Museum of Modern Art in New York was phenomenal. Mm. And Dan is an artist who is autistic, nonverbal, and he does these very complicated, large, abstract drawings where he starts to write words and word patterns, and he puts one on top of the other until they form uh, sort of huge abstract paintings or drawings. Then the idea that it's really his communication with the world because he doesn't speak adds this other level of intensity and the content is so deep and rich that his work was really um, kind of transcendent in terms of how it crosses over into, into many paths. Just like the success of creative growth was the result of a strategy to fund the survival of the organization, the growth of the uptown neighborhood was no accident. Cities also need funding to survive. Without residents and businesses, there's no tax base. And taxes, of course, are necessary to pay for schools and libraries and roads and the fire department and countless other public services that cities need in order to be comfortable places to live. This is part of a huge, complicated story, but here's the point. Much of Oakland's tax base fled the city following World War II. After Jerry Brown became mayor in 1999, he launched a plan to redevelop several areas of Oakland, including parts of Uptown. One of the goals of that campaign was to reinvigorate Oakland's tax base. It should be noted that racism was a major factor in the post-World War II draining of Oakland's tax base, but I'll come back to that story in a later episode. Here's Tom's description of the changes that started happening in the Uptown neighborhood in the early 2000s. Well, a lot of the reasons for the development of Uptown, which I don't know if people really remember, is, is from when Jerry Brown was the mayor of Oakland. He specifically said that Uptown was a neighborhood that he felt was close to transportation, had interesting architecture, was accessible, was underdeveloped, and he set a 10K goal that if he, we can move in 10,000 residents, the neighborhood would really change. During those years when he was trying to work on that plan, it was during a kind of, you know, the bubble had burst. It was a little bit more recessionary. I don't think people believed him or it didn't see, it wasn't a go, go, go kind of time like it is now in terms of housing and development. But that was his vision. And he lived in the neighborhood. He lived at the Sears building uh, on, uh, on 27th as well. So he was a neighbor. In terms of why Uptown became an arts district and not just another mixed residential and commercial neighborhood, Tom offers a few suggestions. I think the reason why the artists came here and the art galleries came here are twofold. One, San Francisco became so pricey that people were priced out of the market. But the second thing is I think that the architecture and the spaces and the affordability of space here was really appealing to artists. A lot of the sort of quasi-industrial buildings, the auto showrooms, the small storefronts, the brick buildings 
really lent themselves to um, artistic endeavors, whether it's studios, galleries, a lot of them are mixed, and I just think it became the place to be. One of the features that has come to define this neighborhood isn't a building, however, but an event. I'm talking, of course, about Art Murmur, a.k.a. First Fridays. Starting in 2006, a handful of galleries started a monthly tradition of coordinating their openings and hosting open studios as a way of bringing people into this area and building community. In 2015, Jerry Eaton and Mario Forloni produced a solid documentary that analyzes the complicated history of First Fridays. I'll link to that on my website. But it's indisputable that Art Murmur succeeded in bringing crowds to this neighborhood and even introducing a lot of people to Oakland. This is around when the New York Times started doing that thing where it runs a style or travel article every six months about how Oakland is so hot and it's the West Coast Brooklyn, yada yada yada. Anyway, just like how the founders of Creative Growth didn't expect their success, Tom explains that the galleries who launched Art Murmur never expected it to grow into the type of thing that draws tens of thousands of people. Here he is talking about some of the benefits of that growth. Well, it's great to be a neighbor now in a neighborhood where we have neighbors. <laughs> so we are partners with all the neighborhood galleries. We were one of the founding members of Art Murmur, the first Friday openings. So that was a, a really important thing. I think there were probably five or six galleries at the time, and now there's so many more. And I think even if we go back to those early days of Art Murmur, even thinking about something like, oh, you know, we closed the street on first Fridays now because it's so busy, and no one would have believed that. So that brings us up to the present time. This is where we find the uptown area today. All of the parking lots around Creative Growth are either under construction right now for housing or have proposed buildings on them that are about to start. As we sit in my office and look out the window and see the cathedral, next year you won't see that because there's going to be a a very large um, new condominium complex behind our building. Of course. While it's nice to have neighbors, a thriving art scene, and lots of cool bars and restaurants, many people in Uptown and Oakland in general are becoming victims of the city's success. Creative growth isn't in danger of being evicted because they own their building, but displacement isn't the only concern. Economic growth definitely has its downside, and we feel that in several ways here. A lot of our artists live in group homes, for example, with other people with disabilities that are supported somewhat by the state of California. And those houses are increasingly difficult to organize because the rents are so high. So if one of those closes, it's for the people move further and further and further out, and it's harder, harder for us to arrange transportation to get our people to come in every day. It's also an impact on our staff. You know, our staff are all working artists. So they're not high-income technology workers, and yet they have to compete for housing and transportation in the same neighborhoods. I mean, there's always the sort of double-edged sword or the, you know, the thing that comes back to bite you is that you help develop a neighborhood and then you can't afford to be in your own neighborhood. There isn't a single blueprint for gentrification. The ways it happens in Baltimore, for example, are different from the ways it happens in Oakland. At the neighborhood level, 
Fruitvale is a lot different from Uptown, but there are patterns and cycles that we often see repeated. This is a simplification because there are much bigger forces at work, but artists and art galleries are often cited as one of the phases in this pattern. Artists are known for moving into neighborhoods that are still considered rough or quote-unquote undiscovered. Then comes cafes and bars, then comes something like a Whole Foods. As this cycle continues, artists are often pushed out, along with residents who might have lived there for decades. This has become a crisis in Oakland, and right now, there's no end in sight. Tom Maria says that Oakland used to be really supportive of artists, back when it was trying to make this area hip. But now that it is hip, and the gentrification cycle is moving into the phase of gluten-free spas, that's really a thing, by the way, and million-dollar condos, the city isn't doing much to stop artists from being pushed out. The thing that disappoints me a little bit is that the city of Oakland hasn't been, so, it hasn't been supportive for the arts the way it used to be. And as the arts and culture have become an increasingly vital part for the city of Oakland, they've just cut back their funding to arts organizations tremendously, and that that's a really that's disheartening. And I would love to see the city step up, step up to the plate and really invest in its cultural assets in the way that it used to years ago before it cut all that funding. One way of looking at this is to say that the city got what it wanted out of the arts community. Artists served their purpose as far as the city is concerned. Now it's up to them to keep up with the ever-increasing rents. Amidst all the uncertainty, Creative Growth is one arts program that's still thriving, and it doesn't plan on leaving anytime soon. In many ways, Oakland is still a perfect fit. For a mid-sized city that isn't a major player in the international art world, it's pretty impressive how many different kinds of art scenes are thriving in Oakland. While some cities might be defined by one style, or one tradition, or even one artist, Oakland is all over the place. The town is a mecca for street art and graffiti culture. It's a center of industrial and the new-agey kinds of art that are associated with Burning Man, which, let's not forget, is an arts festival, and a very influential one, albeit not in the contemporary art world. From the art that Emery Douglas did for the Black Panthers in the 1960s and 70s, to countless young artists of color who are working in Oakland now, often outside of the predominantly white contemporary art scene, we see styles ranging from Afrofuturism to activist art by people like Fabiano Rodriguez and Melanie Cervantes getting much-deserved attention. The African-American Quilt Guild of Oakland was even recently featured on the cover of the art section in the New York Times. It would be impossible and wrong to try to put all these different styles in one box with one label, but something that does connect it all is a kind of independent do-it-yourself ethos. People who want to become glamorous art superstars don't move to Oakland. This town is for people who want to do their own thing. And on that note, here's one last thought from Tom. You know, where do we see outsider or folk or other, you know, we see it in the American South, we see it in places like Oakland, we see it in places where there aren't sort of historically cultivated academic traditions and lots of money and institutions and pe- so people find their way. 
and you come up with your own vision, you, you work in a political way, you work in an authentic way, you work with a, with a personal voice because that's what you have. And um, so I think the community of Oakland as artists sort of resonates with those ideas. I should add that even the use of the term uptown is somewhat controversial. The rebranding of this neighborhood has overshadowed names like Northgate that some people historically used to describe parts of this area. However, for the sake of simplicity and because many people aren't familiar with names like Northgate, I chose to use the term uptown broadly. If you disagree with that decision, let me know. I'd like to talk and allow you to weigh in on this question in a future episode. The music for today's show came from The Fucked Up Beat and Studio Noir. Check out their Bandcamp pages to hear more. As always, I want to give a shout out to everybody who is working hard to keep Oakland history alive through projects like the Oakland Wiki, the Oakland Heritage Alliance, and of course, the local history room at the Oakland Library. Thanks again to Front Group Design for the East Bay Yesterday logo. And don't forget to check out the East Bay Yesterday website to see photos for the story and to follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please, please, please subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment. It means a lot. If you have feedback on today's show or you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, drop me a line on the social media channel of your choice. All right. See you next week.